Jonah 3 is where we're at this morning. We're going to talk about the gospel and faith. Before we get into the text this morning, I want to kind of set things up. I want to ask a question. Where were you when the world stopped turning? Yesterday was a big day for us. You know, that question that I just asked comes from a pretty famous country song that was written and produced by Alan Jackson in response to 9-11, in response to what happened on that day 20 years ago. He wrote it to commemorate. He wrote it to remember the feelings that he felt and the feelings that Americans felt that day when trade towers were attacked and the Pentagon was attacked and another plane went down in Pennsylvania. You know, yesterday, all across our country, many times, probably in every football game yesterday, there, there were people honoring what happened 20 years ago. It was all over the television. Anywhere you looked, you saw people remembering and reflecting and commemorating and paying respect and honoring the 2,977 Americans who gave up or lost their lives 20 years ago. You see, that morning when they got up, they thought it was going to be a normal Tuesday. They were going about normal routines, and yet it was anything but normal. When those Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked those four jetliners, they were declaring jihad against the United States. They used those planes as instruments of mass murder. Those jetliners... As I said, two of them crashed into the trade tower. One crashed into the Pentagon. Many believe that the fourth one was intended to hit the White House. And thankfully, Flight 93 was taken down by brave Americans who were able to keep the plane from crashing into its target. But in any event, all of the people on all of those planes lost their lives. And in the cases of the three that did hit the buildings, particularly the twin twin towers in New York City, thousands of people lost their lives. Massive death took place 20 years ago. We as Americans will never forget that day. We will forever live with those images that we saw. For many of us, those of us who experienced it, it was probably it's the only time I can think of where we actually had a catastrophe happen in such a massive scale where we watched it on live television. I remember watching the second plane hit the second tower. Images are vivid in our minds. That dark day reminded us that evil is a reality which we must never forget exists in our world. We, we should never come to the point where we begin to think that things are getting better, that things are progressing. This past Friday morning as I was at the gym, I was listening to Dr. Moeller uh, on the podcast. He has a podcast Monday through Friday called The Briefing. I would, I would encourage you to, to listen to it. Here's what he said in response to the 20th year anniversary. He says, in the years preceding September 11, 2001, Americans had begun to buy into the idea of a universal peace, of an age of global reason in which peace would prevail because reasonable people operating on the basis of instrumental reason would be able to work out conflicts in such a way that war could be avoided. He goes on to share how the background for this belief was built upon the teaching coming from the Enlightenment philosophers of the 18th and the 19th centuries. In fact, Immanuel Kant was the, probably the lead philosopher of that age. He's a German philosopher. In 1795, he wrote a book called Perpetual Peace, a philosophical sketch. And in that book, he placed confidence in human nature, in human reason, 
which many of those in the Enlightenment era saw could bring about or bring an end to any kind of armed conflict or violence when it came to the relationship between states. See, this reality they believe could be achieved so long as the states had a basically little r Republican or Republic type of structure of government, so long as they were at least inclined toward democracy. The philosophers of this age argued that this kind of perpetual peace was possible so long as they were modern nation states and were ruled by or governed by people who would operate in the age of reason. And so they begin, we as Americans begin to believe that, that we're getting better, that we're progressing, that we're no longer those Neanderthals that just fight all the time. And yet the 18th and 19th century, what were they followed by? The 20th century. What happened in the 20th century? World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, all kinds of conflicts. In fact, you look at history and what you see in the 20th century is that it is the bloodiest history in the history of humanity. So this belief and philosophical aspiration seemed to be proving right as we moved up to 9-11. And yet they're negating all of the bad stuff and they're looking at the things that had just happened, such as the end of the Cold War. I can remember as a kid in elementary school watching President Reagan outside of the Berlin Wall telling them to bring it down. I can remember the, the, the implosion of the Soviet Union. I can remember those things in my childhood, and we celebrate those. We celebrate the unification of the German nation under a democratic government. And yet, as we look at the century as a whole, it was extremely bloody. What we find there is that the reality is humans still possess the propensity to do evil and to be evil people. So we dare not forget what the Bible says about people. What does the Bible say? Romans 3, 9 tells us that all are under sin. The Bible tells us in, uh, in, in Romans 3 there that no one is righteous. No, not one. It tells us that no one seeks after God. It tells us that, that all people are deceitful and hateful and murderous and that they war against one another and against God. You see, this evil condition is the experience of every human heart that has not been redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the reality of humanity. And so on a day like yesterday, as we commemorate and remember what happened to our country, we need to understand that it can happen again. And the reason it can and the reason it will happen in some context somewhere in this world at some time is because the human heart is exceedingly wicked and in desperate need of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sinfulness is the condition of every person in rebellion against God. You see, the prophet Jonah, as we are looking at his life and looking at his story, Jonah was fully aware of the evil in the world. Jonah possessed a keen awareness of the evil that the Ninevites, those wicked Assyrians, possessed and how they acted. He knew the pain inflicted upon his people at the hands of the Ninevites. 
And so when God called him to go and to preach against their sin, he decided, I would rather reject the order of God and the commission of God because they might hear, they might heed, and they might repent. Therefore, God, who is gracious and merciful, will forgive. And he knew those wicked people did not deserve any sort of forgiveness. And so he uh, turned tail and, and fled in the other direction. The Bible tells us he went down to Joppa, he chartered that ship, he stepped down into it to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And we know the story, as the boat begins to sail away, uh, away, God begins to hurl a storm after it. He's going to get the attention of his prophet. We've seen this in the first two chapters. And while that storm is, is gaining in strength, while it's raging outside, what is Jonah doing? He's asleep in the bottom of the ship. He's oblivious. He's numb to the whole affair. And when he's awakened by the captain, the storm does not surprise him. He knows why it's raging. He tells them why it's raging. In fact, he even gives a solution. If you will throw me overboard, the storm will cease. Jonah would rather die than to be obedient to God because that means that his hated enemies and those wicked Assyrians could be forgiven and he wants nothing to do with that. And so the sailors don't listen to his solution. They try harder. They attempt their own action plan, which fails and fails again and fails again. So finally, they decide, we'll go with your way. They throw him overboard, and the sea ceases its raging. Jonah can only tread water for so long. And so eventually, he begins to sink into the deep. That's what we looked at last week in chapter 2. His desire for death, rather than obedience to the cause, quickly replaced with despair. It's amazing when we get into a, a situation like that, when we begin to feel the affliction, how our countenance begins to change. Now, he's not, uh, he's not moved by affection for the Lord. He's moved by affliction that's coming from the Lord in his life. Either way, he calls out to God, and God answers. Calls out. He repents. He places faith in the Lord, and God appoints a fish to come and to swallow him. And as we saw last week at Jonah's uh, repentance, we were reminded that the Lord specializes in the impossible and in the improbable. You see, his mercy can and his mercy will reach down to the very depths of our despair and raise us up when we turn to him, when we repent of our sin. And so it may feel like a person's a million miles away from the Lord. It may seem like you are dead to the things of God. And yet, if you will just look his way, he is there with a helping hand to raise you up to life. That's what we saw as we looked at chapter 2 last Sunday. Today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at Jonah's message of judgment to the people of Nineveh that God desires for sinners to be forgiven. And I want you to see how God desires not for them just to be forgiven, but be transformed. To do that, they must first believe the gospel. See, today we have to believe in Jesus. We have to believe in what he's done for us to be saved. We catch a microcosm of this here in the Old Testament that that plays over into how Jesus culminates everything for us in the New Testament. Look with me in Jonah chapter 3. Let's read the first five verses. I want to come back, kind of lay the context a little little bit more in depth, and then give you some some application points. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. There's a lot in these five verses. I hope you're picking up on some of the nuances here, some of the things that just kind of stand out to us. For instance, we see here that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What's the first time? Well, the first time's in chapter one when he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Arise and go and, and tell them that I know about their evil. And Jonah gets up and goes in the opposite direction. Here, Jonah is sought after by the Lord. He's called out by the Lord a second time. His experience was unique. Now, what am I talking about here? Well, I don't know if anyone else in the Bible, I don't know anyone else in history for that matter, with a story like Jonah, a story where they have heard from God and said no to the things of God, and God sent a fish after them to get him in the right spot. You ever heard that story? I probably wouldn't go fishing if that's the way God operates with us all the time, because there's a lot of times that I'm probably not where I need to be, and I just feel like if I fell out of the boat, it's, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a crispy critter. It's bad news for me. Jonah's unique, and yet the principles behind this uniqueness, the uniqueness of this story are seen in all of our lives. Let I me mean, think about it. More than likely, you here today in this service, because the Word of God came to you a second time. I mean, think about your, what you do for the Lord, how you serve the Lord. You're probably serving the Lord because his word came to you a second time. You weren't obedient the first time. I just, it'd be interesting to go around the room and say, how many of you, the first time you ever heard the gospel, you responded in faith? More than likely, it's none of us, or very few of us at least. God's word continues to come. God's word continues to speak. Even as we are followers of Jesus and we're seeking and wanting to be obedient, many times we're not, and yet his word keeps coming graciously and mercifully to us. God here graciously re-employs the prophet. And he again commands him to go to Nineveh and call out against it. And so the revival birth in Jonah's heart results in a mighty spiritual awakening in the hearts and the lives of those living in this great city. God's going to use Jonah's experience to bring about God's desired outcome amongst these people. And Sinclair Ferguson, one of the commentators I, I read uh, on Jonah right now, says this about it. God intends to bring life out of death. I think that's what Jesus is drawing on when he says that, that people are seeking a sign and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. What do we see in Jonah's life? God brings life out of death. He should have died in the, in the sea. He should have died in the fish. And yet Jonah lives. He should have died because of his sins. And yet God gives him a second chance. Therefore, the people of Nineveh have another opportunity to look to God. Jonah tells us here that the city of Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It's described this way four different times in this short book. In fact, it's a right description. Archaeologists affirm this kind of description. 
It was great in history. We know in Genesis chapter 10 that this, this city was, was founded by, by uh, Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, in Genesis chapter 10. But it was also great in size. The city stretched for eight miles, and including its suburbs, it had a circumference of around 60 miles. The Metroplex then could have had a population of somewhere around 600,000 people, which would have meant, meant in that day and age that was a mega city. It was great in splendor as well. It was great in, in, in influence as it's one of the leading cities of this powerful Assyrian empire. But Nineveh was also great in sin. I think the first message we had in Jonah uh, about a month or so ago, I, I laid out some of the description of this city and I talked about how wicked, how evil, how violent these people were. And they were all of those things. The Ninevites showed no mercy toward their enemies. In fact, they would often impale their enemies alive on long sticks and leave them to die a slow death out there in the desert sun. They would behead people by the thousands and just pile their skulls up as a warning against others who would rebel against them. They would skin people alive. They were steeped in infanticide. Oftentimes they would kill babies and children just to kind of get them out of the way. If they were unwanted or if they were going to be a, 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 a scourge upon the culture there, they would just kill them. In many ways it seems like our culture today. This is the people to which Jonah was commissioned to go. This is the people to which he was to go and to preach. And what do we find in Jonah chapter 3? That is exactly what he's doing. He goes and he preaches. Normally it would take a person three days to navigate through the entire city. That's what we read here. And Jonah begins this assignment and he spends the very first day preaching a message of judgment. If we were to read this in the Hebrew Bible, it would be a five-word message. How many of you wish that the preacher would have a five-word message? If you say anything, I'll preach five minutes longer. We don't know the extent of his message. We don't know if this was it. We don't know if it was a summation of what he said. I tend to believe it's a summation. Because if you read, if, if they're hearing only what we read here, then how do they know anything about this God? How do they know who even he's speaking of? And so it seems like that the parenthesis or in the parenthesis of what's being said, something else had to have been said. They had to know that it's going to be at the hand of the God of Israel. They needed to know that Jonah was being sent by this God and he's going to destroy you for the sins that you've committed. And so Jonah preaches this sermon on judgment from the God of Israel to these pagan idolaters and they believed God. That's the amazing thing in this. Here's people who are polytheistic and they're listening to a man who is monotheistic. He's a one God worshiper. They're a multi-God worshiper and they listen to him. He's an enemy. He, he's from a nation that could easily be conquered. And they listen to him. Why? We don't know. Other than the power of the Spirit of God. There's some things we could think about. There's some speculations we could make. I mean, was it something that he said that was more than recorded here on the pages? Was he so discolored because of three days within a fish? He was bleached? I don't know. That's Some scholars talk about how that could be a possibility, that if you're regurgitated after a three-day vessel ride through the bottom of a, a fish's belly, you probably don't look the same. You're no longer tan. You're white. 
really, really white. So maybe his discoloration uh, got their attention. Maybe he smelt like a fish. Maybe they heard his story. Maybe it got to them before Jonah got to them. Regardless, they understood that the God of Israel is the one true God. They're drawn to him. They believe in him. And they repent of their sins. And we'll talk in depth about repentance next week. So what we do know is that God used Jonah's experience to reinforce his word and the people of the city believed it. See, this is the work of the gospel. This is the work of the gospel in the lives of people. God desires to see sinners forgiven of their sins. God desires to see people transformed, the old passing away and the new coming. God wants them to turn from evil things. God wants them to live righteously for his glory. He wants sinners to recognize their brokenness and how sin has separated them far from God. And he wants them to, by faith, turn to him through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, died on a cross to pay their sin debt. That Jesus, God the Son, in his death was not just a temporary death, but was buried. So there's no description whether or not he died. He was buried in the grave for three days. And then on that third day, rose from the dead. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul tells us the gospel is. This transformation that took place in these people is nothing short of amazing. So I want us to look at this miracle today and next Sunday, Lord willing. I want us to look at it through the lens of the gospel. This morning, we're going to talk about it from the perspective of gospel and faith. Next week, we're going to talk about gospel and repentance. You see, both are needed in our salvation. We can't faith into Jesus and yet still cling to our sin, but yet we can't turn from our sin if we don't have faith in Jesus. We need both. So let's talk about this this morning. I want us to discover three things. First of all, I want you to see the God of the Bible is on mission seeking to save sinners. The God of the Bible is on mission. He is on mission in this book. Who is he seeking to save? Not a bunch of righteous religious people. The wicked of the wicked. Look at Jonah 3.2 again. God says to Jonah, arise, go to to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. See, the, do- the day that Jonah arrived in Nineveh, what were the citizens doing in the city? Or what were the citizens of the city doing as he arrived? They were doing what they did every day. I don't know what day a week it was. I don't know what their occupations might have been. There was probably different people doing different things. But they were doing just like we do. Tomorrow morning, it's Monday. Whatever you do on Mondays is what you're going to be doing tomorrow. Unless there's some sort of exception, like you got to go to visit a doctor or, or something else that's, that's outside the norm, more than likely you're going to do what you did last Monday and the Monday before that and the Monday before that. That's what's happening in Nineveh. And Jonah arrives on the scene. These people are wicked. They're living in rebellion against the God who created them, and yet they probably gave very little thought to that rebellion, to what they were doing in rebellion against God. But little did they know that 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 day would end much different than it began. It's like the day we woke up, Tuesday of September 11, 2001. It was going to be a normal day for us. And yet that day changed everything in American history. Everything that we do today. You can't fly like we once did. 
Nate and I were talking about it in the office the other day. He's like, I don't know what it was like to, to fly before 9-11. I was like, it's a whole lot easier back then. You could actually walk to the gate with a loved one or a friend or whatever and, and talk the whole way. Now you can't get past the TSA. There's armed guards and dogs and tanks and all kinds of artillery, all because a little hyperbole there changed everything. And yet that day, though they thought it was going to be a normal day, that night they would go to bed on a tear-stained, prayer-saturated pillow, all because God got a hold of their hearts. Preaching against sin and the subsequent repentance and faith revealed to us that God is on mission. See, he absolutely desires to seek and save sinners. And we know this to be true, don't we? We've experienced this, many of us. Jesus himself described his mission as not one focused on religiously righteous people. He's not satisfied to just be in relationship with an isolated few. No, he wants the whole world to know his glory. He wants the whole world to know his goodness. His eyes are on the people of the world. And the Apostle Paul explains God's heart to us in Romans chapter 10. Listen to these verses. I think they're going to be on the screen for you. Verse 11. Paul says this, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, has, what he has heard from us. What's Paul saying here in these verses? Well, he's making it abundantly clear that the God of the Bible is not exclusively the God and redeemer of the people of Israel. That's never God's plan to just be the redeemer of Israel. Israel was to be a light to the nations. To be a proclaimer of the gospel to the nations. And so Paul's pointing that out. He's bringing that to clear, into clarity here. God is seeking out everyone, Jew and Greek. That's Jew and Gentile. And he seeks them out by sending believers to tell them the gospel. You see, he sends believers to sinners so that they will hear the truth about themselves and about God. God is on mission seeking sinners. This morning as we go to small groups, it's going to be different for the next six weeks. You're not going to be able to just sit there. Well, you can if you want. But we don't want you to just sit there and say, teach me, teach me. This is going to be training. It's not Bible study like normal. This is us learning a strategy of how to share the gospel with someone else. Easy, scratch it on a piece of paper. There's an app that you can work through if you want to do it that way. We want to give you tools so that there's no excuse whatsoever that God is, or is not and cannot use you. Truth is, he can and he wants to. It's whether or not you will be willing. We want to equip you to do that. Why? God's on mission. And he uses you just like he uses Jonah. There's a second thing that we discover here, and that's the God of the Bible justly judges sin. Why do we need to take the gospel to people? It's because God judges sin. That's the message of Jonah. Look at verse 4. The message is simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The message here that the prophet is, is saying doesn't seem to have been a detailed apologetic approving the existence and, and the supremacy of Israel's God over the idols of Nineveh. That's not what he's talking about. 
but rather it's simplistic. It's simply explaining the judgment of God upon sin. And yet that's a message that we shy from, right? Why is it that we don't want to talk about judgment when we talk about the gospel? I would make the argument that if you don't talk about the judgment of God, you're not sharing the gospel. Because if you don't talk about the judgment, why is there a cross? The Bible says nothing about a universal salvation. The Bible says nothing of, well, I love you and your sins, it's, 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 it's an affront to me, but it's no big deal. I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. No, we've said throughout this study, God never glosses over our sin. He deals with it. Thankfully, in Jesus, he mercifully dealt with it in God the Son. Paid the penalty so we did not have to. And yet we shy from it. I remember several years ago, this was probably 2005. I know it was 2005 because Karen and I were moving into our apartment. We had just moved to Louisville, Kentucky. I'd resigned from my church where I was a collegiate pastor, my home church. We had moved to Louisville for me to finish my last two semesters on campus to kind of expedite everything. And I remember we're moving in. We got boxes everywhere. And I did what all men do when you're moving into a new home. You get the TV set up first, right? Get it up, right? Because this you know, well, I guess it was summertime. There's no football, but you got to get the TV on. And I remember I'm doing something in the living room that evening. And for some reason, I was watching uh, Larry King live and uh, a very popular TV preacher was on that broadcast that night. And Larry was trying to, to box him in and, and get him to, to say what he really believed about homosexuality. And this famous TV preacher would not call it sin even though the Bible clearly does. Now, I'm not just pulling out that one particular sin. I'm just saying, here's a, a very clear, sinful lifestyle that the Bible very clearly speaks against, and this preacher, who professes to be a Bible preacher, would not call something what the Bible calls it. And yet the Bible never shrinks back from calling sinful things sin. In fact, it's the opposite. It expresses the just judgment of a holy God against that sin. For instance, Romans chapter 118 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, you might make the argument, that's very general. What is he talking about here? Well, that's Paul. What else does Paul say? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he gives us some clarity on what sin might be. He says, oh, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and some, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. God never glosses over sin. He deals with it. He rightly points it out. He rightly judges it. The Ninevites here were never going to get away with their rebellion and wickedness. God saw their sin. God saw the condemnation it placed over them. And he judged it. But in the same way, God sees our sin. And he sees its condemnation it brings in our life. He sees how it separates from us, us from him. And he sees how it deserves his just judgment. And yet, thankfully, he's made a way for that sin to be forgiven, for that sin to be redeemed. Do you notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I just read? 
Verse 11 says, and such were some of you. What does he mean by that? Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and who we made up the church of Corinth? A bunch of redeemed sinners, a bunch of adulterers, a bunch of idol worshipers, a bunch of sexually immoral people, a bunch of thieves. I mean, all kinds of people who, who said in here today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a bunch of adulterers, a bunch of idolaters. You say, I'm not an idolater. You're absolutely an idolater. Anything that, that's over, above in worship of God is an idol. It doesn't have to be a little gold trinket. It doesn't have to be a piece of stone. It doesn't have to be a philosophy or a religious system. It could be recreation. It could be a paycheck. It could be a relationship. It could be your family. We're idolaters. And yet through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sin and transformed. So like the Ninevites, we need to recognize God's judgment on sin, believing what he says about it. There's a third thing, though, I want us to discover. The God of the Bible redeems sinners who by faith believe his word. Verse 5. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. How do we know they believed God? They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And they turn from their sins. See, the Ninevites believed God about their sinful condition. They did not dismiss it. They did not try to explain it. They didn't try to, to talk about how, well, it's my upbringing or my upbringing. It's the way of life. It's my family situation. Or if I didn't have this going on in my life, this wouldn't have happened. They didn't do any of those things. They heard God's judgment upon their sin and they agreed. Yes. I am undone. I deserve the fiery pits of hell because I've rebelled and rejected the holy God who created me for himself. And they fell on his mercy. They believed God's grace. They believed that he's long-suffering and in faith turned to him. You see, it may seem that sinners are beyond the grace of God. But if you read the story and you understand who these people are, you know that's never the case. No one can send themselves beyond the reach of God's grace. That's a good statement, right? I have about three original statements in my life. That's one of them. You ought to write that down. No one can send themselves, sin, S-I-N, send themselves beyond the reach of God's grace. So I hope you see here in this story God's grace, God's goodness, his readiness to forgive, his readiness to restore sinful people. He specializes in this impossible and improbable. One of the things I've loved uh, about the whole commemoration of the 9-11 uh, story and what happened there is the heroic uh, things, the heroic feats that's come after 9-11. I think of Navy SEALs going in and taking out terrorists who are plotting to attack us again, doing the improbable, doing what would seem impossible, and yet they did it. I mean, how long did we search for bin Laden? 10, 12 years? It seemed like we were never going to find him, and then all of a sudden, all of the, the, the impossibilities came to a head, and there he is, and we took him out. That's what God does in our lives. His mercy can and will reach down to the very depths of our despair and raise us up. That's the song that Ricky just sang for us. 
right? I speak Jesus over anxiety. I speak Jesus over depression. I speak Jesus over the addictions of my life. I speak Jesus over my family issues. I speak Jesus over whatever it is that keeps me from God and believing God. I speak Jesus there because I believe God that he's powerful. Y'all awake this morning? Too much football yesterday? If anybody can be excited about football, my hogs destroyed the Longhorns yesterday. You're just waiting for me to say something about that. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What is Paul saying here? He's telling us that the God of the Bible will redeem your life if you will believe what he says about your sin. If you will, by faith, believe on him for the forgiveness of that sin. Believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that what he did on the cross was enough. That he's not there. He's not just a martyr. He's not just a good teacher. He's just not a good person that was trying to help us. No, he is the living God who is resurrected so that you could be alive free from your sin. That's the only way we're made right. And so have you trusted in it? This morning, if you're sitting here and you've never given your life to Jesus, what is keeping you from it? You you think you're going to work yourself out of your bad situation? You think you're going to be able to work yourself out of uh, judgment and wrath into blessedness and sonship before God? No, you're not going to do that. In fact, Jonah himself, who's the prophet here, he would have died if he didn't repent of his sin because he deserved that. That's the reason, right? The only way you can be forgiven and redeemed is by faith turning to Jesus Christ. The only way. For us as believers, man, we got to walk in that gospel. We got to share that gospel. How often do we share that with people? How often, when you're in the office or wherever you work, maybe you're at school and, and you just hear of the life situations of others and and you're just sitting there thinking to yourself god their life is a mess you're not making judgment call you're not being mean-spirited you just realize their life is a wreck and yet you hold the very thing that could help that situation and you never open your mouth you just sit there and think well they're going to see jesus in my life maybe but if you'd open your mouth and say you know what Uh, you know I, i don't know everything but I do know that I've had some really hard situations in my life and I've made some bad mistakes and and, and just kind of tell your story and then bring it around to how Jesus transformed you. You're not perfect. You don't got everything figured out, but you're figuring it out because you believe God about it and just tell that story and bring it back to Jesus and relate it back to the cross and, and bring them to a place where they can understand this is what Jesus wants to do for my life. And, and, and call for a response there. Why are we not doing that? Why do we not do that? We don't want to get involved. I know how you feel. Kara came to me last night in the middle of the Arkansas-Texas game <laughs> and said, hey, um, 
and I'm not going to mention the name. There's, nowhere, there's no one that lives around here. It's a friend of mine. He said, hey, are you ever going to call so-and-so? Because I just see some things, you know, we had. We spent some time with them a few months ago. I see some things on their page. They're, they're not relating to each other. They're just different scenarios there. And, of course, my thought was, I really don't want to get involved in that. I've got enough on my plate with marital issues and things like that and church life and community. I don't need another thing. And yet, as I said what I just said, you know what I felt like the Lord's telling me? You've got to get involved there. You've got to figure out a way to kind of put your finger on that and, and not do it in a judgment way. But, brother, man, I'm seeing some things here. And I, I just want clarity because I love you enough to interject myself into this equation. We don't do it because we don't want to get involved, and yet God calls us to get involved. Very delicate, I get all that, but we have the gospel right there in our lives, and we fail to share it so many times. So will we be like Jonah 1, or are we going to be like Jonah 3? Jonah 1, I ain't doing it, I'm out of here. Jonah 3, I've learned that I need to be obedient to the things of God. I've learned not just that his judgment is, is strong, but I've learned the grace of God as well. I, I think that's, I don't have time to get into that because I'm, golly, I'm, I'm way over it right now. Ted Clark got one more minute because I usually preach 43 minutes. And I got like 28 seconds or so. But I wish we had time to get into that whole idea that Jonah has experienced the grace of God and he knows he's good and that's why he's going to the Ninevites. We're going to get into chapter 4 and he's still got a little stubborn, stubborn heart to him and he's ticked off that the people actually repented. There's like, he's like us, up and down in his walk with the Lord. But at this point in his life, his heart is, his heart is hot and it's obedient and it's beating, pulsating with the gospel of the Lord. Our heart needs to beat that way as well. Amen.